Welcome to The Blind Side. News and information from a blindness perspective. Here's Jonathan Mosen. Hello, lovely to have you back with us for another edition of the podcast. If this is the first episode of The Blind Side that you've heard, well, I really appreciate you checking out the podcast. Word of mouth continues to spread, and we love this. It's Tuesday afternoon in New Zealand as I record this, and we're recovering from the Super Bowl. I didn't actually intend to watch the Super Bowl, And Bonnie, even though she lived in Massachusetts before she came to New Zealand and grew up in Atlanta, so she has strong Atlanta roots, didn't want to listen to it either initially or watch it either. I said to her, do you want me to do something so you can watch the Super Bowl? And she said, no, I'll learn about it on Facebook. But then when Super Bowl Sunday came along, which was actually Monday our time, she suddenly decided that, yes, she did want to watch the Super Bowl. So using the techniques that I outline in my audio book, Imagine There's No Countries, shameless plug, available from the Mosin Consulting Store, I did some quick trickery and we were able to watch the Super Bowl. Oh my goodness, I'm not an American football fan. As somebody who sees a lot of rugby, you know, we've grown up with a lot of rugby in New Zealand. We get 80 minutes of play involved with a little bit of a break in the middle, but the way that American football starts and stops a lot is something that I find very hard to get used to. But I have to tell you, I sat there absolutely riveted by the Super Bowl. And when they got to halftime, and it was, what was it, 20 points to three or something like that with the Falcons ahead? And I'd read a bit, you know, in advance of the Super Bowl to try and get into this. And I knew that the Patriots were favorites and everybody said the Patriots were going to do it and all this sort of stuff. And I said to Bonnie, it looks like we are witnessing a sporting upset of Trumpian proportions. I said, Trumpian proportions, that was a good word. And then that comeback, I said to Bonnie, who was supporting Atlanta because of her deep Atlanta roots and because she seems to have this dislike of the Patriots. It seems that a lot of people have this dislike of the Patriots. Anyway, she said, uh, no, well, don't count out the Patriots. They're tenacious. And I said, I'd like it to get just a little bit closer, just so it's an interesting event to watch. And she said, no. She was very emphatic. I've never seen Bonnie so animated about sports before because she's not actually really a sports person. No, she said. And when the Patriots started to come back in that dramatic fashion, that blitz towards the end there, I tell you what, I learned new things about Bonnie's vocabulary. It was quite a revelation. So we're all calming down after the Super Bowl. But on the podcast this week, shortly, I'm going to be speaking to someone who I first met, I think, all the way back in 2000, although I had heard of her before. This is Kim Charlson. Now, Kim, in those days, when I was directing ACB Radio, was the chair of the Board of Publications, I believe. So we had a lot to do with each other. And now she's the first female president of the American Council of the Blind and indeed the first woman to be elected to the presidency of any blindness consumer advocacy organization in the United States. I'll be talking with Kim in an extended and probing interview. I hope you find the subject matter fascinating. I really did enjoy having a conversation with Kim. Before we get to that, I want to remind you about the talk show that we have on Mushroom FM on a Thursday night, because if you like the sort of thing that we do on the podcast, then you'll love the talk show. And the advantage of the talk show is that it's a call-in show, and we have made it really easy to participate in this call-in show. You can call in via your computer if you use either the Chrome or the Firefox web browser. You can call in via phone numbers all over the world. 
and you can participate in the discussion. The show is called A Kappa at the Mosins, and Bonnie and I host it together. It airs live on Thursday nights from 9 until 11 p.m. Eastern Time at www.mushroomfm.com. And if you want to find out how you can participate and a little more about the show, then the URL to go to the webpage for it directly is www.mushroomfm.com slash kappa. That's mushroomfm.com slash C-U-P-P-A. Now, up ahead, of course, it's Valentine's Day. It's a time that people love to love. It's also a time that can make some people feel pretty gloomy. And we're going to be talking, literally, about blind dating on A Kappa at the Mosins this Thursday night. We're going to assemble a panel of people and we're going to be talking about how you have met your significant other. And I hope that we can get a really good age range of people here because it'd be nice to talk to people who've been together for 30, 40, 50 years, long before computers and dating sites were around. And we're also going to be talking to people who are seeking to find their significant other or maybe have found them in very recent times. And we'll talk about use of computer dating sites, whether you've ever met anybody through instant messaging or social media that you've ended up forming a meaningful relationship with. And we'll talk about dating sighted people and that all important thorny question, when do you disclose? So if you use one of these computer dating services, do you put on your profile right there that you're a blind person or do you just turn up? So you organize to meet at some cafe or bar or restaurant and you turn up with your white cane or your guide dog and perhaps risk giving someone the fright of their life? Or do you get to know the person first and before you have a physical meeting, drop the blindness in there? So I think there's a lot of potential for discussion. Our panel also includes representatives from the LGBT community. So we're not just talking about heterosexual dating. And of course, you'll be very welcome to participate by phoning in or using your computer. All those details at www.mushroomfm.com slash kappa, C-U-P-P-A. Really looking forward to your participation in what is turning out to be a very interesting show. Not thanks to Bonnie and me, but thanks to all the people who were calling in. A kappa at the Mosins, 9 Eastern every Thursday in the evenings here on Mushroom FM. It's time to hear from this week's featured guest on The Blind Side. America may still not have elected a female president, but in 2013, the American Council of the Blind elected its first female president and unopposed, no less. Now, through her life, Kim Charlson has made her presence felt, whether it be through the work she's done in the library field or through her advocacy, where she has volunteered literally thousands of hours to making the United States a better country to be blind. And Kim Charlson joins me now from Massachusetts. Kim, it's great to have you on the blind side. Welcome. Thank you, Jonathan. I'm honored to be here. You had your side as a child, but even then, you were a bit of a precocious, effective little advocate, weren't you? You even made the <laughs> sand pit a better place to be. Yes, you know that story. Yes, yeah. um, I was I was born fully sighted. And when I was about eight years old, I started running into things quite a bit, and especially lamps and lights. And my family decided to take me to the eye doctor and they discovered that I had juvenile glaucoma. And it was interesting because I just thought that everybody saw halos around lights. 
no one told me anything different. So at the time, I remember thinking, well, I thought everyone saw blue halos around lights, you know, and but that was that was my glaucoma manifesting itself, but I didn't know. So I started losing my vision when I was nine, 10 years old and lost most of it when I was about 12 from complications of surgery and glaucoma. But even before then, yes, the 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 story that often floats around um, ACB, and when I'm talking to new leaders, I'll often tell the story of, of the sandbox. When I was in kindergarten, we had a playground, and it had a sandbox. And we didn't like our sandbox very much because it had a lot of trash in it and things that just weren't nice, cigarette butts and all kinds of things. And one day we all just got really tired of it because it was really gross that day. And I said, let's go see the principal. And I organized about 15 little kindergarten kids together. And we marched into the principal's office. And I was the spokesperson. And I said, Mr. Somebody, who I don't even remember now, but <laughs> I said, we we want to talk to you. There's a problem. We want our sandbox to be nice, and we want you to fix it. And I could tell he was just trying so hard not to bust a gut and laugh. You know, now that I think about it, I said, well, he was a very nice man. So basically, he said, all right, we'll take care of that. And we all left and were quite happy. And within a week, we had the most beautiful sandbox you ever saw. And it stayed that way for the rest of the school year. And we were re really happy. <laughs> so, so my first advocacy activity that my mother tells me about was when I cleaned up the sandbox at kindergarten. So there you go. You made a difference. And some people are just born leaders, aren't they? You led that team in there and you got a result. Well, I think I think so. I think sometimes it is that way and you just feel like you have to do something. So your science was pretty much gone by the time you entered your teenage years. That must have been a really difficult thing to adjust to, although I suppose people's resilience varies a great deal. How did you deal with that as you became a teenager and, and were entering the world of blindness? Well, I can remember, and it is a challenging time because I still had a little bit of vision. I couldn't, I couldn't see well enough to read print, but I could still see and I could kind of fake it when it came to not using the cane when I was 13, 14 years old. And, you know, it generally takes a few hard knocks or hard falls when you miss a step or something to really make you kind of grow up and realize that you can't do that. That if people don't understand why you have a white cane, that, you know, that you just, you have to protect yourself. But I can remember walking down the halls in high school because, I was very fortunate to be able to have what I still consider to be the best of both educational worlds. And that was that I, I went to a residential school for the blind and I lived at home and that went up through ninth grade and then 10th, 11th and 12th grade, I went to public high school. So I was fully integrated in a public high school and then went on to college. So all of my junior high years were were spent getting me ready to integrate out into high school and go to public schools. So I really feel like, you know, I had the great skills. I had blindness skills. I could type. My classmates, when I went to, to high school, 
couldn't believe that I knew how to type because they really weren't teaching anybody how to type then. So they thought that was a really amazing skill that I could type because they couldn't. So there were so many things I could do that they couldn't. And I have to attribute that to a, a very, very solid residential school education where I learned my blindness skills and I became solid in, in Braille and orientation and mobility and independent living and all those things that, that now are so difficult to get for public school kids. It seems that philosophy has trumped reality, really, in the sense that there's a general acceptance that every child has the right to go to their local school, but there doesn't seem to be an adequate understanding or acceptance in many places that for a blind child, that actually involves significant and ongoing resourcing. That's absolutely true. I mean, we, we talk about the, the least restrictive environment or the most appropriate environment for the student. And I think that in so many cases, you know, the most appropriate environment could be the residential school for the blind, whether you're, you live on campus, stay on campus, but the specialized instruction and the opportunity to do things so many of those opportunities are the ones that that I believe go so far in in helping a, a student to gain independence and confidence. The the um, student council and as you said, I, you know, I work here at the Perkins School for the Blind. I'm a, a department head um, running the Braille and Talking Book Library program, so I'm not directly involved with the students, but I do see how their engagement in music and theater and athletics and wrestling team and cheerleading and swimming and all those things just add to their confidence and their desire to learn and do more. And a lot of kids come here later in their education who have been totally downtrodden by bullying and other things that have happened to them in a public school setting. And it's very sad to see how low things had to go before the school system and the families decided that they would send them to um, a place like Perkins. And one of the things that may well put them off sending them is this catch-22 situation where a lot of schools for the blind now are predominantly comprised of children with multiple disabilities who have uh, multiple needs. And so parents often are concerned about the socialization aspects of sending children to an environment where they feel they may not receive the kind of socialization that they need as youngsters. I think that's true. And I think that I know certainly at Perkins, we have, you know, both kinds of programs for both types of students. And we do have academic students in our elementary school program and in our um, junior, senior high program, students that are getting high school diplomas and going on to college. And in fact, Perkins is is just on the cusp of launching in in September of this year a college success program, which is an um, in-depth college um, preparation program, a, a nine-month program to help students get all the skills they need and to get themselves ready to, to go to college. Um, Perkins did some significant research with college graduate rates for students who are blind and visually impaired. And their findings determined that um, six out of 10 students who are blind do not complete college. 
that was obviously within the U.S., the, the data was gathered, and Perkins wanted to do something about that. And part of the reason, when we spoke to those students and their families, there was a variety of reasons. Sometimes it was the support wasn't there from the college or university to help the students get the materials they needed. The courses were too hard. They didn't have any friends. It was kind of depressing. They weren't prepared to take care of themselves in a dormitory type setting. So there were a lot of factors that contributed to it. So Perkins has created a curriculum and a program that involves students actually going, taking a class, um, two semesters of class, and also learning all the independent living skills, visiting colleges, learning about all the assistive technology support they need, the scanners, the technology, how to get their books, all the things that they're not going to get support for so that when they decide where they're going and what their class is going to be, they'll be prepared and they won't, you know, hopefully they will succeed. That's the objective is that they will, in fact, graduate from college. That sounds like a wonderful initiative. And to me, it illustrates one of the problems that may exist within mainstreaming as it currently is implemented. And that is that one of the things that I think must be taught if a blind person is to be successful in life is appropriate self-advocacy skills. And that's not necessarily just standing up when you are discriminated against, but it's things like if you go to college, if you have a need, you need to be able to clearly articulate hopefully in a non-defensive way, what that need is. For example, I'm sure that um, when, when you and I were both at college, we would advertise for readers because technology was far less advanced than it is now. And so the only way to deal with the wealth of print material was to have a schedule where you had readers who would go through material that you needed to read in order to get your assignments completed. It just seems to me that even though we're so connected, we're so online these days, Access to good quality mentoring from blind adults who've been there and advocacy strategies, it, it all seems to be a bit lacking still. I think it is. And it's critical for, I think, you know, whether you're you're going to college or you're getting a job, you're wanting to live independent for the first time, having mentors and role models is is really critical. I had a very important role model in my life. My sixth grade teacher at the Oregon School for the Blind was named Carol McCarl. And when I found out she was going to be my teacher, I told my mother that she had to get me into a different class. And my mother said, why? And I said, because she makes you work really hard. <laughs> um, so, you know, my mother just chuckled and that was the end of that. And of course, I was in Carol McCarl's class for several years and she ended up being you know, a very demanding, very inspiring role model for me and really was the person who who led me into advocacy, both in first it was in student government at the School for the Blind, and then it became part of um, the um, ACB affiliate in the state of Oregon, where I was part of the the local chapter and president of the local chapter. And at the age of 22, I was president of the state affiliate. So I've always had a strong interest in politics. I was going to be an attorney when I was in college. And I have an undergraduate degree in political science and have really, I've always been fascinated by politics and government and 
But my senior year, I felt like I, I don't want to go to more college. I'm, I want to do something in the real world. And what ended up happening was I got a job at the Talking Book Library in Salem, Oregon. And I was a um, production, book production specialist. And I trained Braille transcribers and audiobook narrators. And so it was my first foray into the library field. And as often happens, sometimes you have bosses that are so incredibly supportive. And other times you have bosses that you just know you could do their job with one hand tied behind your back. And I felt the same way, but I knew that if I didn't get a degree in library science, I would never have an opportunity to go into management in a library setting. And so I applied for a fellowship in 1984 to get um, my master's degree in library science, and I was selected, and I went to the University of North Texas in Denton, Texas for one year. I left my husband, Brian, back in Oregon, uh, where he learned computers, and that's a whole other story on its own, and I got my degree in library science because I wanted to make a difference in a field where there was very little leadership from blind people themselves, but there were a whole lot of people who thought they knew what blind people needed with respect to their access to information and their library services. So I decided that my objective was that I wanted to be the director of a Braille and Talking Book Library program in the United States somewhere and really make it a model library program that really modeled a public library with all the accessibility for people who are blind and visually impaired. And I think that's what I've been so fortunate to be able to do over the last 15 years as the director of the Perkins Braille and Talking Book Library. So as you've said, you became active in the American Council of the Blind very early, and there were two national organizations of the blind in the United States. And I'll come back to that point a bit later, but I wonder, did you become involved specifically with ACB by happenstance or did you make a conscious, deliberate choice that ACB was the organization that you identified with? Well, I think I made a conscious decision. I did know um, people who were active in ACB and people that I respected And one of those people was very active in legislative activities at the state legislature. And he was another one of my mentors. And because he was so well-connected and knew all the senators, he kind of took me under his wing and introduced me to senators and taught me about how laws are passed and, and what you have to do to advocate to get your laws passed and testifying at hearings and all those different things. I did visit a convention of the National Federation of the Blind, and I didn't feel comfortable. I didn't feel welcome. But maybe something that's always been a little different with me is I have a great deal of respect for my colleagues in the National Federation of the Blind. They are working hard to make the lives of people who are blind better on so many levels, and there is so much work to be done. I have never been someone who's going to denigrate what NFB does. My approach has always been that I know what ACB does, and ACB's strength is its democratic process, its grassroots nature, where you can have an idea at at the local level and you can bring it to the top, 
and not be afraid that you're going to be pushed down because it's a silly idea. And you have those chances. So there's state affiliates, there's local chapters, there's a national organization, and it's a very democratic, open process. And I really liked that. And I think that that's what made it possible for me as a young 22-year-old woman to stand up and speak to the members and get involved in um, committees and that kind of thing and eventually be elected president of the Oregon Council of the Blind. And subsequent to that, I've, I've led other affiliates, Guide Dog Users Incorporated. I've been president of the Braille Revival League, which is another special interest affiliate of ACB. And after my move from Oregon to Massachusetts, I was president of the Bay State Council of the Blind as well. So I've had many opportunities to lead at all different levels. And in fact, I still serve as treasurer of our Massachusetts Guide Dog chapter. I think it's important to to help support folks at the local level and the state level, um, not just sitting there at the national level doing things, but trying to make sure that, that there's support for people at all levels of the organization. So you make a compelling case that one of ACB's greatest strengths is the democratic and open process. I suppose there's a counter-argument to be made that one of ACB's weaknesses is the democratic process because it does take a very long time for policy to be made. Sometimes it seems like at an ACB convention, anybody can grab a microphone and hijack a meeting of uh, well over a thousand people and that sometimes that process of debate and committees and, and ongoing discussion can mean that the organization may not always be nimble enough to respond to a rapidly changing political climate. I would agree with that. Democracy is not always pretty, whether it's at the ACB level or at the U.S. national level. It hasn't always been a pretty sight, but to me, it's it's what's right. I have never been somebody who who will sit still for somebody to jump up and say, I want to, I'm, I move to table or, you know, uses parliamentary procedure in a way that, that will stifle discussion. Um, ACB does have rules at the convention. We have um, rules for debate and the membership has to decide if, if you want to talk about something for more than 20 minutes, then the whole body has to decide to talk about it for more than 20 minutes. Um, I like to try to make sure that if if something needs further research, that we send it to either to a committee that can provide us with the the background and information we need to the board of directors so something can happen. Our resolution process is very involved and engaging, and people do have an opportunity from the floor to make motions. And as you say, sometimes it can um, sidetrack a discussion. But for the most part, I would have to say that I think the product that comes out of a, a deliberative process um, is, a, is a better product. Yes, it certainly would be easier as president to be the one that said, this is how it's going to be. But that is not the way I work. And it certainly isn't the way ACB expects its leaders to work, to have that kind of a unilateral from the top down sort of thing. I I would much rather 
collaborate with, make, make suggestions, gain consensus. I'm not afraid to say, come on, guys, we really need to do this this way if that's what has to happen. But I would rather everybody agree that that's what needs to happen rather than me push them in that direction if I absolutely have to. But I think that, that ACB has, over the last three years, done some incredible things. And I wish we could do more. And, you know, resources are part of that. Um, human resources are part of that. But I think that we've truly made a difference within the organization and within the general blindness community and have really um, stood up on, on several different areas to make things better for people who are blind or visually impaired. You make a difference in a variety of ways, and it's really great to hear the enthusiasm in your voice when you talk about the work that you're doing with Perkins, uh, your director of an important blindness program at Massachusetts. Do you ever find that there's a conflict between running a blindness service that people care about so deeply and being the president of a national organization like ACB? And how do you manage that conflict if you think it occurs? Well, I have always been very careful that what I do in my work and what I do for my advocacy isn't going to get into the way of one another. I'm also particularly careful about, you know, providing the same kind of opportunities or or not providing the same opportunities to either organization. For example, somebody might think that because I'm the director of the library, I've got access to all these names and I can advocate and get people to join organizations and that kind of thing. But of course, I I don't do that. I also don't give access to any other organizations. However, I will make it possible for announcements to be shared or a mailing to go out or things like that that will, you know, it will be equal. If one organization wants to send their convention announcement, the other organization can send their convention announcement, those kinds of things. I think the best thing to do is to be fair and equitable and make sure that your policies and your practices are just above board and not show any favoritism. And I never have, and I have never had a problem with um, members of NFB. I've got a good relationship with NFB, and um, I think that's why I'm just open and frank and honest with them. And I think they respect that. How would it work, though, if members of ACB even in Massachusetts felt that there was a significant deterioration of some kind in the quality of the service that the library was providing? And they wanted ACB as an organization to go into bat and try and get this issue resolved. How would, how would you deal with that? Well, um, I mean, it's not going to happen, Jonathan. We have the best <laughs> library. <laughs> <laughs> um, and in fact, have been recognized by the National Library Service as one of the outstanding talking book libraries in the country, which is which is exciting. But I think you you know I, what I would do if there if there was a disagreement in, on some issue, I would sit down with people and I would try to find out what those disagreements were, and try to you know sit down with them and and determine what our solution could be. Um, You'd have to recuse yourself in some ACB capacity, though, wouldn't you? Well, it hasn't come up. Um, I did 
when I was elected, one thing I did do was I made a point and, and talked to legal counsel to make sure that Perkins didn't feel that there was a conflict of interest if Perkins should ever do any business with ACB or NFB in some ways. And we did have a situation that came up, but because I had said, you know, there may be potential opportunities to do some work for ACB or NFB, our recording studio did do some work for a couple years for ACB on a fee-for-service basis. And I declared that I was ACB president, but I was not directly responsible for the work that was being done. And our lawyer said, that's fine. You told us about this in advance. That was good. So so that was one area. And just, you know, recently we had a, another area where we started to have a little bit of a disagreement with NFB about an issue. And I think um, it, it resolved itself pretty well. But for a moment or two, there was a little bit of time where we weren't sure we were gonna we were gonna get there. It's an issue that NFB has now moved on with regarding um, access to digital instructional materials, and we had some concerns, and we expressed those concerns. And the um, the delegation from NFB did some some work on the language, and now they're working to try to get sponsors for um, national legislation about developing a digital standard for educational instructional materials for post-secondary education. And I think we're all going to be able to, to agree that the, what the language will be will be useful and acceptable to all of us. And that's because we did sit down and take the time to talk through areas where we disagreed and um, came up with some, some, I think, good, some good outcomes. And I'm hoping, you know, wishing them well. They're having their legislative activities at, on Capitol Hill in um, toward the end of January. So I hope that they will be successful in finding sponsors to support that legislation. I'd like to talk about the way that organizations like ACB fit into the world of 2017. The world has changed markedly since ACB was formed back in 1961, and many of us are now connected via the internet on a regular basis. Legislation, uh, largely thanks to consumer advocacy, enshrines the, the civil rights of blind people. And as a society, people tend to be less inclined, I think, to attend meetings now, to, to go into drafty halls and volunteer for committees. People now have the means to file their own complaints under that legislation that consumer organizations have helped bring about if they want to change the world as an individual. What would you say to those who advance the view that collective advocacy organizations have had their day and served their purpose now? Well, I would try to persuade them that I don't think that's the case. Um, I completely agree with you, and it is frustrating to me at times that that people will still say, well, help me, I have a problem. And I will say, well, I'll help you, let's work together. But I think society is changing, whether it's it's blindness organizations or the Lions Club or a civic club, people are not participating in organizations and civic groups like they once did 30 or 40 years ago. And, and I think part of it you, you identified correctly in that things have gotten better for the most part. And I hear this a lot, especially in the United States. We've, 
we have the ADA, you know, we've got um, access to government and more books and access to information and technology than we could ever have the time in our lives to read. Why do we need advocacy organizations? And what I've found in the past, and I think it's going to come back um, as a recurring theme over the next several years, is when times start to get tough, budgetary constraints start to um, have an impact on organizations, we start to see sometimes the erosion of some of those rights and opportunities and services, and people get worried. And they start to come back to the organizations that have, have worked for them over the past and said, we've got to work together, or we may lose this program or this service. And I think I'm already starting to see people pulling together under our new administration here in the United States. There's a lot of concern that there will be erosion of services. So it's incredibly important to work collectively to you know, make sure that that those services and people who who are not as able as you or I or the listeners of this program to speak for themselves have a voice, somebody that's speaking for those who can't get out and speak for themselves. And that's always been really important to me. And and you know, I've I've talked to those people. I know those people. I've I've heard their stories about you know, older blind folks who who believe that they can't do anything except be at home because they didn't get the opportunity to learn how to be a blind person. Um, there's so little funding for rehabilitation services for individuals, you know, older individuals who are blind that often all they get is a white cane or a talking clock and maybe a couple hours of home instruction, and then they're supposed to move on and live independently and just know how to be a blind person. And it doesn't happen quite that way. So there are many, many people who are blind who are very marginalized in our society, and they need organizations to speak on their behalf. One of the things that has impressed me is that ACB has always been willing to embrace new technology if it believes that it can help its cause. You go all the way back to the 1990s, ACB was very quick on the web. It was quick with email lists. Of course, uh, it started ACB Radio when um, streaming was very difficult and a bit hit and miss from time to time. And now you have the ACB Link app. So it does look like there's an acknowledgement that to be relevant, ACB needs to embrace new ways of communicating the message and, and advancing the cause. Absolutely. Social media, Facebook, Twitter, ACB link. We just had um, version 1, 1.0, 1.0, 2.0, I guess it would be this, the most recent version that's just come out. And uh, I'm excited to say that we are working on an Android version of ACB Link as well. So hopefully that'll be out in the spring sometime before convention. You and I both know that advocacy is a little like banging your head against a brick wall, except that every so often the brick wall budges just a little bit and you realize why you're doing this. If the Charleston presidency were to end today, what would you be able to say about the things that you've done since 2013 that have made a difference to blind Americans? Well, there's a few areas that I think have 
really made a difference. One of those areas is ACB's work with structured negotiation and our work with Lainey Feingold um, and Linda Dardarian, two California attorneys that have helped us use a structured negotiation strategy rather than litigation. And we have made some pretty significant inroads into the accessibility of prescription drug labeling um, and having script talk or other braille labels, large print labels, or talking labels on prescription medication. What we're working on now is trying to get the infrastructure in place to support same-day accessible prescription labels, and that's a little more challenging. I think with Braille labels, we're kind of willing to accept the fact that, you know, you can't really have same-day Braille labels because the pharmacist doesn't know Braille, and they they use a centralized location to generate those labels. So we understand that. Um, large prints, not so bad because they can read that, but also having the um, the talking technologies available, that's what some of the work we're doing now, and I think that will make a big impact impact on people. I also think that the work that ACB has done since 2010 on the um, 21st Century Communication and Video Accessibility Act has really been groundbreaking in a lot of different areas. One of the um, programs that was born um, from the CVAA was the I Can Connect or the Deafblind Equipment Distribution Program that um, allocates $10 million a year to provide accessible equipment and technology to connect people with severe hearing and vision loss with technology to get them connected to the internet, to the telephone, to texting, whatever they're doing. They're using technology now to communicate with people and before they were not doing anything and they were isolated. So that's a major program that came from the CVAA. And of course, ACB's work in our audio description project, ACB truly is the leader in advocacy for audio description, audio description for television, um, audio description for movie theaters, for live performances. It's been a major um, part of our advocacies, particularly with the CVAA, the audio description for television. And then in December of this past year, December 20th, we had the um, the enactment date for the accessible hardware that provides access to people who are blind for their set-top box to give them access to the channel guide and the program guide and allows them to turn on and off description independently. That's been a big step in accessibility. Accessibility to television. I've I've worked with so many blind people who first said, well, why is audio description that important? And I said, well, just watch a couple shows with it and then think about it and let me know what you think. It doesn't usually take very long for somebody to spend a little time watching a couple programs to realize what they were doing before was listening to television and making up 
the things they didn't know for sure. And so they were kind of making up their own stories and filling in the gaps with whatever they felt was was the angle they wanted to go with on the, on a program. I know that ACB's done a lot of work with Netflix, and this is all part of the structured mm-hmm. negotiation, which uh, maybe I will I'll ask Lainey if she's willing to come on the podcast and talk some more about structured negotiation, because I think that's a fascinating area. But I tell you what, I watched House of Cards, and as a political junkie, you may well have seen House of Cards. I, I absolutely yes. love it, although I have to say I think that reality has now outweirded House of Cards in the United States, which is something I never thought I could possibly say. Anyway, I watched the first season of House of Cards, and at that stage, Netflix was not doing audio description. And the only way that I could get some of the gaps filled in was to look up the recaps online, where there were sort of volunteers who would summarise the episodes that you'd just seen. And in some cases, I was able to fill in some of the gaps. When Netflix turned audio description on, one of the first series they did because it was one of their own was House of Cards. And I went back and I watched season one all over again. And I was absolutely staggered by how much I thought I knew that I didn't actually know. It completely changed my perception of that series. Absolutely. It is It is amazing. And it is so fun to have Netflix. And we did work with Netflix um, in stu- structured negotiation um, with uh, with a different attorney on that particular case. We worked with Disability Rights Advocates, which is a San Francisco-based firm on our Netflix case. But structured negotiation really can make things turn out in a win-win for both sides of the equation. And I think that's the overall success of structured negotiation. And Lainey, in fact, has just in um, November of 2016, she um, wrote a book about structured negotiation that is available. um, It's available here on Bookshare, and I'm sure it must be available um, online as well. Over the years, um, successive candidates for president of ACB have acknowledged the organization needs new funding streams. And there's been this concern that deficit funding uh, is an issue. It can't continue. Lack of funding. And you've, you've alluded to this already, that lack of funding prevents the organization from achieving all that it would like to. And there have been various quite grand schemes over the years to put this right. None of it seems to have succeeded. Why has the issue of funding within ACB been such an ongoing issue? And what do you believe can and should be done about that? Well, it it is absolutely a challenge. And when I became president, we were in a pretty serious deficit spending situation, something that our board and I knew couldn't continue if the organization was going to continue to survive. You can't spend in a deficit way for very many years before you really harm the organization and, and, and its infrastructure. And so we had to really do some very strategic planning and, and look way forward and make some strategic decisions about some of the things that ACB has been using for revenue streams, i.e. our thrift stores. And we did make some critical decisions. We had to close some non-functioning thrift stores. Um, and we invested in some thrift stores that were still doing very well. And just kind of making some of those types of decisions, really looking at um, expenses in a lot of different ways and trying to diversify our funding 
a little bit has has put us into a position where we're doing much better and in fact have eliminated our deficit spending situation, which is something I'm very pleased about, <laughs> to say the least. It kept me up at night sometimes worrying about where the funding was going to come from because we just couldn't continue. So over the last couple of years, we've really turned that around. And I think it's it's due to a lot of hard work from the staff of the organization, the executive director, Eric Bridges, we have our, our financial staff, our controller and accountants in Minneapolis do a lot of great work and have helped. And there's so many people within the organization that are doing a lot of work to raise funds for the important work of ACB. So it takes everybody to make it work. And I'm just pleased to be able to say that things are working so much better now financially for ACB. Yes, I want to see them work even better because there's more that we want to do. And if we can hire more staff and have more funds, we can get more done. And that will that will make me very happy. Maybe this takes us back a little to structured negotiation because I know that some other consumer organizations, when they file suit, and they say, look, the law has been breached, you must obey the law, and it maybe it's perceived as a little bit heavy-handed. But sometimes as remedies, when those suits are concluded, there is a donation to the organization that has filed the complaint, and ACP tends not to go there. I wonder whether that's a, a very significant source of income that may be overlooked. Well, I, I think you're right, because in in kind of, you know, legal action or structured negotiation, um, both sides do a lot of work. And particularly when ACB contributes in a, in a structured negotiation situation, we're working hard to help the other side come to a conclusion that, that meets our expectations and allows them to do the business they need to do and meet their accessibility requirements. So, there often is some kind of a settlement and legal fees for our attorneys and things like that. So, you know, I think there's more work with sponsors. A lot of not-for-profits are working more with corporate America to, to look at sponsorships and those kinds of things to find revenue streams that can help their organizations. And uh, I don't think ACB is any different in that way. You know, sometimes I say to people that your voice reminds me of Hillary Clinton's and some people laugh and say that's just absolutely ridiculous. But it does. You know, your, your voice reminds me of Hillary Clinton's and it's like... Well, that's really nice. Well, I, I, you and Brian are like the Clintons in reverse and the analogy doesn't always apply. But of course, Brian ran for president. Your husband, Brian, ran for president in 2001 in a pretty famous election and was not successful. You now are president and you were elected unopposed. I want to just talk a little bit about what it's like for you both to be a woman who has been elected to this position for the first time and what that means for blind women, not just in the United States, but all over. And also how you deal with being, if you like, a power couple in the blind community, because obviously Brian's very well known. He has a high profile internationally. Uh, he's a really capable guy and you're a very capable person as well. And I imagine that sometimes that does pose some challenges for you both. Well, thank you, Jonathan, for that that recognition and, and that honor. I appreciate that. And I, I truly do believe that you know, when I was elected 
president in 2013, I got hundreds and hundreds of emails congratulating me for for becoming the first woman president of a major blindness advocacy organization in the United States. From all over the world, really, there were people that, as you said, were very excited to hear hear the news. And I truly do appreciate that. It's It's a lot of responsibility to be a role model for so many. But, you know, I've done it in my professional career as a library director and one of the first blind people to be a director of a library. So I really like kind of charting a new course and making the world see that blind people can do things they set their minds to um, and that sighted people's or anybody's attitudes or expectations about what I can or can't do shouldn't hold me back, shouldn't hold any women back um, as far as wanting to, to have leadership roles. So I've tried to mentor both people who are blind and particularly women who are blind to give them opportunities in ACB, to give them opportunities you know, when I can in, in the work setting as well, because I had mentors and I just believe it is so incredibly important. People shouldn't have to feel like they're the only one, you know, blazing a trail out there. If there's ways to learn from others who have gone before us, why not learn those lessons and, and take it a little bit easier instead of thinking that we're having to, to cut down the entire forest so we can we can get to the other side all by ourselves. The the collective power of all of us is much, much stronger than just one person trying to fight it all alone. So that's that's kind of my mantra. But the other thing that really makes it possible for me to do what I do professionally and for the advocacy world and for ACB and other organizations that I'm involved with is Brian. As you said, he is an amazingly supportive husband. Um, He believes in the cause of ACB. And so he's just amazingly supportive and helpful, gives me somebody to talk to. Um, I think you've kind of found that same kind of, sounding board with Bonnie. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's invaluable to me to have somebody that I can bounce ideas off of, who's not afraid to say, you know, that's kind of not going to work. Let's talk about this and see if we can figure out how it could work. Um, And somebody that you respect, and will say, will say that without Brian's support, I could not have done it. And he really does make it so much easier for me to, to spend a lot of time giving um, hours and hours in the evenings to ACB and he'll make my job quite a bit easier in so many ways. There was once a time when ACB and NFB were all one, um, maybe not always happy family, but they're all one organization called the National Federation of the Blind. And then in 1961, the founders of ACB broke away from NFB and they created this new organization and the wounds ran very deep. I mean, I remember attending ACB conventions and talking to some of the old timers who were there back in 1961 and and learning about some of this history. Uh, Sadly, most if not all of the key players in that schism are now no longer here. Given how difficult it is for blind people to get traction on many issues these days, it's all getting harder worldwide really to attract members to collective advocacy organisations. Isn't it time that ACB and NFB buried the hatchet and reunified? 
Well, you know, I would, I would have to say, I, and I think I did earlier say, I've never been somebody who has animosity toward or hatred or any of those strong, strong emotions that I know are out there toward NFB. I have respect for them and what they do. I don't happen to believe that it's a bad thing that there are two perspectives. A lot of things ACB and NFB can work together on and have done so very successfully. And when we can, I've had conversations with Mark Riccobono. He's called me, I've called him to see how we could work collaboratively on on issues that I knew we were both very, very committed to. But then there's other issues that ACB might take the lead on, and NFB has been good about letting us do that. They'll have their issues. So right now, my position is we need to work together. I feel pretty strongly and safe to say, you know, we're not fighting the way people saw the organizations maybe 20, 25 years ago. You know, there was always a, well, why can't you just get along? And I feel like we're getting along better. But I I don't think it's a bad thing that there's two different perspectives. We have Republicans and we have Democrats in the United States, and there are two different perspectives of things. And that that keeps things interesting. Maybe someday. You know, I'm not afraid to say that someday, you know, there probably will be some some efforts toward unifying and it may need to be the reality of the time that there will be one organization and that, that may come. Yeah. You don't concede then that if a media outlet goes to ACB and gets a different answer from NFB or a legislator goes to one organization and gets a completely different answer in terms of what should be done from the other that neither organization is actually doing blind Americans any favors by showing this kind of disunity publicly. And it may not even be deliberate, but if there can't be a collective position from the organized blind in a country like the United States, surely everybody suffers as a result of of, of that confusion. Well, I, I think you're, what the scenario you outlined is absolutely true. And I think that most of the time when we're asked for opinions, I would say that we're very careful, as I believe NFB is, not to give a counter position to something that maybe we were working on this issue. As I mentioned before, the um, the higher ed education um, standards that, that NFB is working so hard on, um, we, we want to support them on that as well. So we we spent quite a bit of time negotiating to get to a place where we could support the issue. We've been very, very supportive of each other. Any on the Marrakesh issue, I am so hopeful that Marrakesh can happen in the United States because I think that the U.S. is a pivotal player in the overall success of Marrakesh because we have a lot of resources to share. But Unlike some who say we have all to share and nothing to gain, I don't believe that because I think that there are tremendous resources of foreign language materials that would benefit our readers a lot if we could get access to them. And there's a lot of English language material out there that 
in countries such as yours and Australia and England and Canada, that it would just be wonderful if we weren't duplicating our resources. So I do think that our organizations are much more cautious and careful about disagreeing with each other because we do get that slap back sometimes from politicians saying, well, if you blind people can't agree, you know, come back when you can agree with each other. And we've heard that so many times that I think we have learned the lesson. And so we try to work out those disagreements beforehand so that we're not going to get that slap back from a committee or a, a congressman or a senator. That segues me nicely into ACB in the Trump era because America now, of course, has a new president. And while I appreciate that ACB has to be a a broad church, as it were, and embracing of all political persuasions, I imagine you must be concerned the climate for ratification by the US of the UN Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, that's pretty much non-existent now, I would think. And as you say, ratification of the Marrakesh Treaty still hasn't happened yet. And at the time that we're recording this, there's a nominee for Education Secretary who has views on the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act that seem positively scary, to be honest. So are we heading into some sort of very difficult era, a very troublesome four years for blindness advocacy in the, in the United States? Well, I, th- I think that we are certainly heading into a time that is extremely uncertain. There's a lot of concern, and you're absolutely right that um, our nominee for Secretary of Education does not seem to have a very strong grasp on what special education and the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act is, and that there are federal requirements that that she will need to uphold. So, you know, this it's an area where our work is going to be really set out for us. But there's also some areas where we've been looking at at the philosophy of of our Congress and our and our president being the Republican philosophy. Um, there's a lot of talk about jobs, and jobs seems to be a pretty high level area where we can hopefully talk to Congress about employment or the another area that's pretty significant is healthcare and healthcare impacts every single individual and there's going to be some changes in our healthcare and what's available for people who are blind and people who are um, receiving social security and um, and Medicare. And so, you know, our work in that area, we need to be able to show that we believe, for example, legislation that ACB has promoted relating to Medicare coverage for low vision devices, that we want to see Medicare cover some small um, magnification devices for elders with vision loss to help them stay independent, to be able to read their mail, read their prescription medicine bottles, read their foods in their kitchen and the instructions on how to prepare them with a magnifier device and keep them in their homes so that they're not just put into a nursing home because society thinks, oh, you can't see, you're old, we need to put you in a nursing home. So we think there's ways that we can use the philosophy of saving money in the long run, keeping people out of long-term care facilities and, and aging in place 
that that will resonate with Republican congressmen and senators. So we're having to take a lot of look at the way we've approached our legislative platforms in the past. You know, it's it's not a secret to to anyone that you know most of the the gains and the benefits and the programs and services for people who are blind have come to fruition under a democratic leadership. So when there are Republican leaders, we have to look at those things a little differently and kind of figure out a new approach to how we're going to tackle some of those issues and what are the priorities going to be and hopefully just keep some of the other programs that people rely on in the backstage area a little bit so they're not going to be high profile but still will get funding. So the times are changing and it's going to be very interesting to see what's happening. Every day brings something new that we have to deal with. So <laughs> it's certainly not going to be dull. I hope I can survive it. It's going to be pretty pretty intense, I can tell you that. I presume that the president will appoint a new RSA commissioner, and in the last little while that person has typically been a blind person. Do you know if a new appointment is imminent there? We haven't gotten any kind of um, intel at this point of anyone who's being considered. We don't know who it might be. We haven't really heard anything substantive. I think with the the little bit of a snag in, in the um, education secretary and the labor, labor just hasn't come up yet um, for hearings. But those are the two areas that I think have to get in place first before RSA our Rehabilitation Services Administration Commissioner will be um, identified. Before we go, I just want to talk about accessible currency. And I don't think it's too unfair to say that actually ACB has sort of changed NFB's mind a little bit on this one because I can remember uh, some having some conversations with NFB members maybe 10 years ago who were staunchly opposed to any idea that uh, the currency should be accessible. And now it seems that there is a general consensus that it should be. But boy, it's taking a while, isn't it? It sure is. And it's uh, it's disappointing to me. We won the litigation in, in 2007 and then the government appeal, we won that in 2008. And since 2008, we've been doing, you know, research and testing and evaluating. And, and it was in 2014 when we had the interim solution. That's what we identified the talking currency reader as an, you know, an interim solution to tactile markings for paper currency. There's an app from the Department of Education for Android phones. There's an app from the Bureau of Engraving Printing for iPhones. And and the talking currency reader that's now distributed free of charge to anyone who um, who needs one, who's who cannot use the visual features of our currency. And we were quite disappointed in um, June of 2016 when um, we we filed with the court that we felt that the delays were um, just not acceptable, that the Bureau of Engraving and Printing had indicated to ACB that they were going to have to roll back the, the dates of um, compliance with tactile currency rollout to the year 2026. So 10 years from now, basically, 
that was absolutely not acceptable to us. So ACB filed a motion and we were quite disappointed um, about a month or so ago when, when that motion came back and the motion was denied that we wanted the government to adjust their time frame. What, on what basis was it denied? That, in fact, the Bureau of Engraving and Printing is working on the issue, and that was that was it. So we have, in fact, filed an appeal to that ruling. Um, probably won't be heard for another six to eight months because 10 more years of waiting for accessible currency just is not acceptable. The original um, court settlement talked about tactile access to paper currency. And and I think anybody who has, you know, used tactile features on currency and has used a mechanical device to also tell them what the currency is can very confidently say tactile features are so much faster than using a device. So part of our argument has always been that we felt that by having accessible currency, it would open up employment opportunities for people who are blind to work in areas where money was handled in part of a retail setting. And you can't work in a retail setting if you have to check every bill with a currency identifier. You're, you're not going to be productive. But in fact, you can make change and be just as quick in identifying money with the tactile features that have been outlined and proposed for the currency in the United States if they would move forward. I've done it. I know it can be done. Um, It's just a matter of getting the government to accept the responsibility of doing it and coming up with a timeline that isn't going to be, you know, we're all old and gray or gone before we have tactile features on our currency. But it's something that impacts every blind person um, in this country. It impacts every visitor who's blind to this country. And, um, you know, a visitor who comes here, unless they have connections, isn't going to get a talking currency reader. But tactile features on their money would make it work for them. So ACB is committed to, um, to the fight for accessible currency. We're going to stick with it. We're going to keep working at it. And someday we're going to have accessible currency that will make it possible for people who are blind to work in a retail setting and have the kind of jobs that are out there at entry-level jobs. You're eligible for re-election one more time. ACB has term limits, so you can serve three terms as president. Do you think you'll be ready to give it up at the end of three terms that you, you'll have achieved all you're likely to want to achieve? Well, I'm, I'm certainly wanting to have um, a third and final term as president. There's still more work to do. I think when the time comes, I certainly will be ready to turn the leadership over to someone else and to be there as an advisor and mentor to them, as Mitch Pomerantz has been to me the former president of ACB. It takes a little time to kind of get your feet under you when you take on a responsibility as large as leading a major organization. But I think that it's also um, a pretty um, demanding responsibility. And beyond six years, I think, I think it's a reasonable amount of time. Beyond that, you're just 
going to start to get tired. And um, believe me, you need to have a lot of energy and a lot of desire and a lot of commitment to work and make things move forward. And there's just no time to be tired. So I'll look forward to things slowing down a little bit in a few years. But right now, I'm kind of on the fast track. And that's the way I like it and hope that I can accomplish a lot more before my time is up with ACB. Because not everybody appreciates that it's a voluntary position. You're not being remunerated in any way for all of this work that you're putting in. I really appreciate you being so generous with your time, Kim. It's always a pleasure to catch up and thank you for coming on the podcast. Well, thank you, Jonathan. It's been a real honor to talk with you and um, I felt like I was just talking to a good friend. So thank you for making it so easy. And um, again, I just say I enjoy your podcast and it was an honor to be part of one of them. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Blind Side, a production of Mosin Consulting. On the web at mosin.org.